0: Thank you for joining in prayer. Continue to be in prayer in the days ahead. Uh, This morning... Uh, I want to uh, preach a message. We are in between a uh, sermon series uh, here. Uh, we ended a series last week on the life of Abraham that we'd been in for uh, a few months, most of the, the spring. Um, and next week we begin a brand new sermon series by Pastor Eric on this theme, this biblical theme of adoption. And really excited uh, for, that to, uh, for that to begin uh, this morning we have this in-between, um, and a few weeks ago, um, most of you, if you've been around Crosspoint, um, uh, you'll, this will be a little bit of repeat, but just to kind of catch you up to speed, as this morning I want to address this idea here, this, this invitation that we have of Sabbath. What does it look like to actually rest well, to find joy and peace, to not view it through a legalistic lens, but to view it as a gift? We have this invitation of Sabbath. And so many of you all know something that communicated a a few weeks ago is that by God's grace, the the leadership here, the elders and staff are making provision for my family and I to take a sabbatical this summer. So this is my last uh, sermon to preach. So settle in. It's gonna be like 90 minutes. All right. But um, uh, that'll actually be the one when I return, like bring a seat cushion. All right. But... um, the reality is, um, as I'm anticipating this, I'm so, so thankful. So first, let me just say that. Thank you for allowing our family this amazing opportunity, praying with you guys um, in the midst of just a busy season of life with our oldest graduating and lots of things going on. It really wasn't until like maybe the last couple of nights, even that I was talking to my wife. I'm like, oh, like I finally kind of felt a time to just sort of like, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to miss you all, um, and, and yet I'm trusting like, what God is going to do in and through this time, and so we'll, we'll return um, kind of mid, uh, mid to late August um, is when we'll, be, when we'll be back, but since that time that communicated this and begun making plans, um, one of the things that, that happened um, is that my 2005 Nissan Frontier began acting up, okay? Okay. Um, and most of you know me, you're like, oh, that's really surprising because you're really good at mechanical things. I'm sure you've got it fixed. But um, <laughs> the reality is I know nothing of these things. Apparently, there are these things. Uh, they're called spark plugs, all right? Apparently, vehicles need these. Um, news to me, right? Um, apparently, they're meant to be changed out every now and again um, in what is apparently called a tune-up, all right? Um, again, all news to me. Um, and so over uh, these last couple of weeks, um, I began noticing that as I would pull up to a stoplight and I would idle, um, that it would begin to like kind of run a little bit rough and it would begin. It felt like it was kind of misfiring and it was shaking a bit. And so I thought, well, It needs more gas, all right? And so uh, not like to fill it up, but like just accelerate a little bit, like just rev the engine a little bit more, all right? And so I would do that. It would seem to get better, all right? And so I was doing that for a couple weeks. Mind you, on the dash, there is this thing that says service engine soon, but that light has been on for years. So I'm like, listen, um, true story, all right? All right. But then it began flashing at me. I was like, oh, oh, okay, maybe I need to pay attention. Um, but again, I'm like, I gotta get ready for sabbatical. I gotta got, I got get ready for that. I ain't got time for this, all right? And so I would go, and I'm driving around town, and I'm doing the, those things, and again, it continued to idle very rough. And then I began noticing, even as I would start to take off, um, that it would still felt like it was misfiring. And so, of course, what do you do? You just press the gas down more, right? Well, I tried that one day, leaving here to go home, and thankfully my mechanic, um, actually I do have a mechanic, all right, um, is about halfway between here, and I, I called Heather and I was like, I'm not going to be home, it's like 6.30, um, I'm going to see if he happens to still be there, and so I, I made it there, um, and he said, all right, well, I'll call you t- tomorrow, I and mean, he literally had already lo- had locked the door and stuff to just keep people like me out, apparently, um, and, um, and so he called, and he said, hey, a couple things, he's like, yeah, yeah. Um, You should have brought it in for a tune-up. The spark plugs, they're all bad, but there's one in particular. And the more you drove it, um, uh, there's things that I was learning, like ignition coils and stuff. He's like, yeah, you kind of fried that, um, all right, and that burned up. And so that phrase, not firing on all cylinders, yeah, that was what was happening, all right? Um, And so what probably could have been a very simple thing, a regular maintenance thing, turned into a bit more of an expensive uh, thing, because my mindset, rather than stopping... Rather than bringing it in for a tune-up, taking care of some basic maintenance was just press the gas down more. I've not got time for this. And now that doesn't do well when you're talking about vehicles, but it's even worse if we take that approach with life. And so God, even in his kindness, is like, hey, as you get ready for this, let me just give you a metaphor from your life, right? Like, you can't keep just pressing the accelerator thinking, I'll just power through and we'll deal with that some other time. Our culture does that. That is what is pushed on us time and time again in this. We've got to achieve, we've got to produce, all right? And what it has left us, all right, is one of the most anxious, exhausted cultures ever because I think the solution has been I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to pay attention to what's kind of going on under the hood. Let me just press the gas down a bit more and we'll deal with that later. And so there's this invitation that I want us to see here this morning. All right. Just looking at this idea of Sabbath. Now, I don't know what kind of church environment you grew up in. Maybe you didn't grow up in a church environment. Maybe you've got some association with this. Perhaps you thought of it as that's the worst day of the week. It's the day when I can't do any fun things. All right. Maybe that was the environment you grew up in. Here's how I want to reframe this. Sabbath is a gift given to us Like it's part of God's kindness and grace. And there are a calling, yes, for to take a day a week to rest. And I realize not everybody is going on this multi-week sabbatical, but there is a call and an invitation. What does it look like both to build in rhythms of rest in a weekly sense? What does it look like to plan out your, your days in in such a way where you are captivated by the wonder of God? Because Sabbath can be both a day and a time period, but also a mindset. Of how are you resting in the finished work of God? And so this morning, I want to look at just three invitations. This invitation to Sabbath invites us to embrace our limitations. All right. It also invites us to celebration and invites us to trust our Lord. All right. It invites us here again: our limitations, then our liberation, and then we'll look at this invitation to trust the Lord. And so Sabbath invites us first to embrace our limitations. Perhaps you're aware of this. Uh, There's this thing called the Ten Commandments. My guess is you've heard of it. All right. The fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath, to have one dedicated day per week. And what's so interesting is that Moses, who's writing the first five books of the Bible, so he writes the book of Exodus, but he also writes the book of Deuteronomy. In both Exodus and Deuteronomy, you get the Ten Commandments. They're in the same order. They cover the same thing. But there is an interesting nuance when we get to the fourth commandment. I wanna highlight this because it helps us see two different aspects of this invitation to Sabbath. The first out of Exodus, again, we'll look at Exodus 20, verses eight to 11. There's this call to embrace our limitations. So here are these words. Here's how the fourth commandment is given to us in the book of Exodus. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. And then here's this line, look at it. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy." So do you see what's happening here in Exodus? There's a call to mimic God, and we mimic God to remind us actually that we are not God. That there's these limits that are put out, like we are finite creatures. You and I actually need rest. When it says that God rested, it's not because he needed a a nap or that he was tired, right? But rather, it was this, this deep satisfaction as he took in all that he had created. And we're made in his image, but we are the creation, not the creator. The creator doesn't sleep or slumber. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get fatigued. He doesn't get bummed out and be like, oh, I'm just gonna disconnect for a while and binge on Netflix. That's not what the creator God does. He never sleeps. He just takes delight in what he's created. But for us, we are people that have been created with limitations. We rail against this. We fight it. same way i don't want to take my car in i don't want to have to deal with that that's going to cost me it's going to i'm going to lose time i'm going to lose productivity it's a big hassle we can view rest that same way but know this right you can try as you might but eventually everybody falls asleep right and so the healthy way to view it even if you read the opening pages of the bible in genesis 1 there was evening there was morning back and forth There's this rhythm, this beat, this cadence to things. Most of us are here this morning thinking, hey, our day started when I got up and I brewed some coffee and I got ready for church and I drove here. The more biblical understanding, the more Hebrew or Jewish understanding is your day began last night when you laid your head down on the pillow. And now you are here as this outworking of the rest that you receive from God. Think about the gospel implications there. Like, we do our work from a position of rest, not to prove, not to earn. Last night, you and I, right, you were there, like, you laid, you weren't there in my bed, that's weird, but you were there, like, in your own bed, sleeping, right, and you, you put your head on the pillow, right, and the reality is you're in this helpless, and so was I, completely dependent state. Some make weird noises while they sleep, others have their mouth open, a little drool running out, right, that's all of us the most intimidating person you can possibly think of. That's how they looked last night, right? It happens to all of us. We are completely dependent. We rest and then we get up and we do our work from that place of rest because work is good and that's a whole other sermon, right? But this call to rest, we're reminded that we have limits in a book called the rest of God by Mark Buchanan. He says this, it's a book I've been reading through in preparation, I have a sabbatical coach, that's a thing in the world apparently, um, and uh, he recommended this book to be in slowly working my way through it. And I came across this quote, and he says this, You know, God is complete without rest, but not us. For us, rest is indispensable. Indeed, all things not God, all things made by God, could be goats and oaks and uh, scarab beetles and pine needles and dragon lizards and dragonflies. They need rest, and maybe especially us. Because unlike goats and beetles and flies and lizards, we try to outwit and outrun our limits. We think we're the exception, the one for whom busyness will translate into fruitfulness. If I'm honest, I believe that lie all the time, I can out. And outrun limits, but let's ask the question, very practically: like, how's it working for you? Has the busyness translated into greater fruitfulness? Sabbath is invitation to embrace our limitations. That's a good thing. We need to be reminded, at least one day a week. Right? The world will keep spinning if you don't answer that call. If you don't respond to that email if you actually take some time for rest like that's and i know there's practicalities to to work out and all that but just as a general principle right think about that how arrogant is it of me to think i can't stop to rest god does not need me He chooses to work through us, but he's also put something into the universe. There's a very way that things are. Evening and morning, that there's this rest, there's this rhythm. And when you and I don't rest and we try and live with no limits, we are going against the very grain of the universe. We are swimming upstream and then wonder why we're tired. So it's an imitation embrace our limitations, but it's also an invitation to celebrate our liberation. So here's what's interesting. Exodus gives the Ten Commandments, number four, Sabbath. But look at how the book of Deuteronomy now describes this in Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. I'll read the first 12 through 14. You'll see it's basically the same, slightly different wording, but same idea. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slaves, your ox or donkey, any of your livestock or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so your male and female slaves may rest as you do. So, general idea, basically the same. But look at verse 15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the book of Exodus, one could say, It's a calling back to Eden, to remember the creation, to remember the creator that built into that. There's this rhythm of Sabbath. And when we don't embrace that rhythm and those limitations, again, we're going against how God has designed us. But here in Deuteronomy, it doesn't take us back to Genesis. And the story of Eden, but it takes us back to a story of Egypt. And it takes us back to a group of people, the Israelites, who were enslaved for hundreds of years under the rule and reign of a pharaoh. And what did the pharaoh say to them, right? As the pharaoh had these monuments, these pyramids and other things built to commemorate them so that their legacy could go on. This enslaved people were told, you are what you produce, and the calling for them is make more bricks, make more bricks, make more bricks, so that one could be stacked upon another to make these, in essence, these sort of idols, these things that were part of the Egyptian like worship. You produce for this evil taskmaster. Now, the particulars have changed, but can we be honest? That same mindset is there there's a pervasive mindset that the culture continues to speak to Christians and non-Christians alike that you are what you produce. You are what you can achieve. The, your identity is built on that. You've got to do more, achieve more, produce more, that everything's a meritocracy. And what is happening here in the book of Deuteronomy The reason Sabbath is so important is that we need a day a week to be able to stop and remember that's not what we're called to anymore. We've been liberated. As the slaves, the Israelite slaves were brought out of Egypt, we have something even better. We were slaves to sin and we've been liberated by the outstretched arm of Jesus on the cross to a freedom, to a rest, to be in the presence of God is rest that that has been the storyline. Like one of the ways to understand the Bible is it's bringing us back into the presence of God. It's this theme of Sabbath rest that runs throughout it. Maybe a way to say it is this, there has been a regime change that has taken place. You used to be regarded as what you could produce, what you could achieve, but now it's all about what Jesus has achieved on your behalf. You get to rest and we need a day a week to remind us that we are not slaves in Egypt anymore. We are more than what we produce and achieve. We are children of God. We've been rescued and redeemed by him, and we need to celebrate that. And so Sabbath is a way to celebrate that reality, to stop and to pause and to say, we've been liberated. Let's praise God for our liberation book I read recently by an author named Steve Cuss, which is an interesting name. And if you're like, oh, I wonder if he plays off of that. Yes, he does. SteveCussWords.com is his website. OK, um, which I was like, oh, man, that guy, that's awesome. But anyway, um, and and so he wrote the, this book, I referenced it a, a few weeks ago on how we deal with, like, you know, leadership, anxiety and stress and, and lots of those things. And he's a pastor here in the States, but he's originally from Australia. And he tells this story that back in, like, uh, in Australia, I believe this is where it took place, um, near his home, uh, there was this story he ran across about, there was a dog uh, racing track near him. And so we're just up the road from here is dog track road, you know, they race like greyhounds and those sorts of things, all right? Um, and so this was taking place at this particular track. And he said the story went as how you would expect, like, the gates open, all right, and these these beautiful dogs and super fast and they would, they would sprint out, but you know why they sprint, right? Like I've never been to one of these races, but I think we've probably at least all seen this. There's this mechanical steel rabbit that like goes like this around the track and these dogs chase it. But one day the mechanical rabbit had a failure. All right. So here's how he described it in his book. I think this is fascinating. Says the dogs were about 30 seconds into the race when the metal rabbit had a power failure and slowed down. The first dog like ran right past it then figured out that the rabbit was behind him and circled back. The rest of the dogs gathered around the fake rabbit, pushing on it with their muzzled mouths, trying to get a bite. What happened next was extraordinary. The dogs started to play. They were prancing around with tails high in the air, some even wagging. They were like puppies, all having a good time around that fake rabbit. They had given up the chase and were enjoying themselves instead of working so hard. Now that scene gets at the heart of this invitation to celebrate our liberation. We've been chasing the rabbit. That is the narrative that is just like, we are discipled by that constantly, just go and go and go and go. And then you see this picture here, if you can imagine it, right? They're just like, oh, Oh, wow! there's other things happening. Oh, I don't have to pay attention to this. I I can stop. That's the invitation here. Again, it is not this legalistic thing that's meant to be a burden to you. It is a gift that the Lord has given. There's this call, would you actually stop? Figure this out, talk with your family and friends. Like if there's ever an area to like, let's hold each other accountable to like, this would be a great thing. Like, Hey friend, I want you to experience more joy. How can we structure our lives as a so that there's this time to actually celebrate and Sabbath ultimately I think is this invitation to trust the Lord, you and I cannot rest if we don't trust. It's just fundamentally like impossible. Like I overwork, give time to things and you do as well when we're not trusting, that God has got it, that God's enough, that I don't need to prove anything anymore. My lack of trust is directly related and correlated to my anxiety, stress, right? Times when you feel burned out, depressed, di- discouraged, like all of those things, fundamentally. Like I know there's like good tired, when you're not idolatrously working, you're just like, man, that was just, it was hard, but it was good. You felt like, praise God for that, work is a gift. But then there's this kind of exhaustion that takes place because we keep believing the lie that God's not good, that God can't be trusted. He needs me to do a little bit more. And so one of the most famous Psalms of all 150, I would imagine it's at least top five, is Psalm 23, very, very famous, well-known Psalm. And what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is just phrase by phrase and more of just a meditative, reflective sort of way. A little teaching sprinkled in here and there, but just allow yourself to just rest in these words. That this picture of who our God is, the one who's identified the Lord as our shepherd, and then we'll see a few verses in, the Lord as our host who welcomes us, who extends hospitality to us. May you be encouraged in this. This is showcasing for us like a real picture of trust. This is the image that we see. The Lord is my shepherd, David writes. I have what I need. I shall not want, perhaps your translation says. The Lord is my shepherd. A couple things there. The Lord is Israel's shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd in a communal sense of God's people. And that is true. There's this corporate sense, but David also personalizes it. The Lord is my shepherd. Friends, if you are in Christ, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is your good shepherd. He is my good shepherd. Let's start there. This doesn't start with looking at the circumstances and difficulties of life, though David is going to get to that. He starts with this reminder, like what his heart needs is, oh, the Lord, the God of the universe, the creator, the one with no limits. He's my shepherd. And then related to that in this personal sense, shepherd, right? No one in that time and place all right, thought like, hey, what I want to be when I grow up is a shepherd. There's a reason David, amongst all his brothers, is the one out in the field doing the shepherding. It's because none of them wanted to do it. It's like you give it to the youngest one. You give it to the the outcast. Sometimes you give it to the one that maybe they couldn't get another job. And so even here, there's this identification. Oh my goodness, the God of the universe is my shepherd? That he would be willing to humble himself? I mean, it's a picture of the incarnation, the lowliness, the gentleness. And then embedded in this imagery, right, is that we're sheep, which means we're, we get lost, we get confused, we wander off, we're stupid, right? That's not a shot at your self-esteem, it's just what the Bible tells us we are if we're sheep, right? It's just like, oh, like sometimes we do these things, but the Lord is a good shepherd. And he says, I have what I need, which doesn't mean that you have everything that you've ever wanted, the exact wording there, I have what I need, shows up in a, another place in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 2, verse 7, talking about the deliverance of God's people again out of Egypt and God leading them through the wilderness. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this immense wilderness. The Lord your God, hear this, has been with you these past 40 years, and you have lacked nothing. It's the same wording that shows up in Psalm 23. God provides. You have what you need. And it continues. He lets me lie down, or he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You'll see different wording, different, depending on the translation. So there's this invitation. He allows me. He lets me lie down. There's also this, he makes me, right? I mean, sometimes God in his kindness will make you lie down and take a break. But he leads me. And there's both sustenance Like God's provision, oh, we need water. The sheep need the the food from the field. But do you notice the descriptors as well? Like this lush green pasture, quiet waters, like we need this provision. We also need beauty to take that in what it does for part of God and how he's wired us and created us that we might marvel at these things and direct our worship to him. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters came across, uh, it was in a commentary I was reading, this guy referenced an author by the name of Philip Keller. I wasn't familiar with him. Um, Brother of Tim, maybe? No, it's not. Uh, But anyway, um, Philip Keller uh, is this guy who was so devoted to wanting to understand some of the imagery in the Bible, all right, that he was like, hey, how do I understand this imagery of shepherd? So he decided, well, for the next eight years, I'll go live as a shepherd. Like that's a level of commitment. You gotta like marvel at that, right? I'm like, I wanna understand this better. I'll read an article, right? Or I'll Google something. What does Wikipedia have to say? This dude went and lived as a shepherd for eight years, okay? And in it, he talked about this imagery, particularly, he wrote a whole book on Psalm 23 and understanding this this imagery, and he's like, Hey, we take it for granted. So you see an image like this on there's the sheep and it's laying out in this field. And He's like, hey, that doesn't happen just all the time. He said there are particular things that have to be in place. He says there's four of these. So in his eight year journey as a shepherd, here's what his four observations were. I think this is fascinating. It is almost impossible for them, he said, to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. Because of their social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. If tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free of these pests can they relax. And lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel a need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. So if that's just true for a sheep physically, right? This imagery then, the Lord makes us lie down. Invites us to lie down. Did do you, do you see the care and attention of like what the shepherd he had to make them feel safe? Hey, you can come and lie down. You can trust me. I have provided for you. You have all that you need. You can rest. You can actually take a Sabbath. Like the Lord has got you. Do you believe that? That's what this is communicating. And he says, this continues. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. To renew can also mean to like search out, to, to find, to recover. Because as sheep, we sometimes run, run off. We do stupid things, right? This is why Jesus would give this parable in Luke 15. So he told them this. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he, is, if, when he has found it, he joyfully, this is great, he puts it on his shoulders. Because even the sheep were so stupid that we're like, I'm not going with you, right? And so he will lift it up and put it on his shoulders. Like, I'm going to bring you back, And then it says this. He calls out as he's coming home. He calls to his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. The sheep is brought back into the presence of the good shepherd. That's the place of rest. So he renews. He finds me. He pursues me. He leads me along the right paths. When we wander off, he comes and finds us. Maybe ask yourself this question then. Like, what path are you on? Or maybe another way to think about this is if you stayed on the same path right now, would you be happy where it would lead you? Are there things that you're like, oh no, I'm I'm striving to prove myself here. Like where are those places where you recognize, oh, I'm on a path. And you can either be following the good shepherd and find life there, or you can keep trying to do it in your own way. But there's one that leads to life, and Jesus is inviting us into that. And then David says this, right? It's not that there's not dark valleys and difficulties in the shadow of death. He starts with this reminder that the Lord is a shepherd. And then he says, when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. Why? For you are with me. Not because the danger isn't there. Like it's communicating. It's not a matter if, if there will be dangerous times and trials and difficulties, but when. I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so the language there even begins to shift. Because earlier he had said, he lets me do this. He leads me. But now it's like, you are with me. This is the picture of God and his disposition towards you in Christ. He's with you. It's why Isaiah would write in Isaiah 43, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name, that he knows your name, that he's named you. And he says, and you are mine. And so when you pass through the waters, guess what? I will be with you. And the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. Friends, all of this is pointing us to Christ. He's the lamb that was slain. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who had the chaos of the waters of God's wrath poured out on him, that he was submerged in that that the fire and flames of hell are what he endured so that we wouldn't be scorched, so that we could be welcomed into the presence of God. And then he says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. There's a shift that's taken place by the time we get to verse five. Because that'd be a little weird for the shepherd to do as the sheep are sitting around the table, right? But it's this image now of a host And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Nobody's gonna touch you. Nobody's gonna disrupt this. This is what you're guaranteed. One of the other ways to understand where the storyline of the Bible is heading is there's this wedding feast. This is ultimately, God is gonna come be with us and he's a host. So he's humbled himself to be a shepherd and he's also this... Picture of hospitality, and he's welcoming us in and saying, There's a seat around the table, and I've prepared this meal and this drink and this party for you. Come gather. I'm so glad that you're here. That's the place of rest. You didn't earn a seat at the table. You didn't prepare the meal. You didn't serve the drink. You didn't do any of it. You just got invited in. He sat you down. This is what he has done for you. That's the place of rest. And he says, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Think about that. Goodness and mercy or faithful love, the steadfast love will pursue me all the days of my life. If we're honest, we get haunted by what we think is still pursuing us, shame, condemnation, guilt, regret. He's like, no, no. That's not what's pursuing you, hunting you. No, no, What is pursuing you is God's goodness, his covenant faithful love, his mercy, his kindness, that even when you and I wander off as dumb sheep, right, he goes and pursues us and brings us back. And it all leads to this, so that I might dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Friends, that's what we're created for, to be in the presence of God. And setting aside time to rest is this little appetizer, this little foretaste of what is ultimately to come in the new heavens and the new earth. When we sit down to this banquet right now, it's just this invitation. When we take this time, so I want, I get to enjoy the presence of God because it's possible to have time off, to go on a vacation, right? I could go these weeks on a sabbatical and not actually experience rest. If I'm not focused on enjoying the presence of God, it's not a call to this mind-numbing activity where I'm just gonna like, eh, hey, nobody bother me for this amount of time, right? Whether it be a day or weeks or months or whatever it happens to look like. At the end of the day, we have to come back to this. Without trust, there's no rest. And so will you and I, will we accept, will we heed the Lord's invitation? That's what he's inviting us into. And the invitation comes from Jesus himself. Hear these words out of Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 to 30. Come to me, he says, I'm inviting you, I'm wooing you, I care for you, all of you who are weary, you're burdened, you're heavy laden, you're loaded up, you've got busy lives, you're feeling burdened, stressed out, anxious, carrying guilt and shame, all of that, he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." The imagery there again, as Jesus borrows from things that the people would have known back then that sometimes we can lose sight of, would have been of two beasts, two ox, that have this wooden beam placed over their shoulders so that they would walk in step as they plow a field, as they do this hard work. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, You can either be tethered all right in this this burden this yoke of the slavery of your sin and judgment everything you deserve or you can embrace my invitation where i took that yoke upon me that's what i did on the cross i took this this yoke like the the wrath of god is poured out on me instead of you and now you are invited to have a whole new yoke it's not that you're just off doing your own thing but rather you're yoked to jesus and that burden is light because he's done all the work. You just get to be tethered to him. I get to be tethered to him, to walk in step with him in his presence. That's where joy is found. Not off doing our own things in the name of freedom. Freedom is found. Sabbath is found. Rest is found. And the easy and light yoke that Jesus provides. And so friends, I want to encourage you, find and figure out like how Are you gonna live this out? Not because you have to to prove something, but because we get to do this. God has given us this gift. So I'll close with this. Four very quick things, I promise you. It'll be quick, as quick as I can go, all right? They're practical. Resist, figure this out. Walk away from work. This has gotta be part of it. What does that liturgy look like that you would walk away? You'd have some time where you resist doing work that you would actually rest, that you would look out for counterfeits, enjoy a a show for sure, but it's not a call to just binge and veg out. All right. Like how do you rest socially, spiritually, mentally, physically, like all of those things. Remember Sabbath parties, remember that you're loved. You've got nothing to prove. And then I love this. These all come from a book called Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson, a pastor up in New York. He says, Revel, this idea, stack some pleasures. What is it that brings you joy? What are the things you'd like to do? This is not the day for scarcity. This is not the day for, like, oh, okay, we'll do one. It's like, no, man, like, layer them up. Stack some pleasures. Begin, like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. There's joy to be found. So here are these words from Mark Buchanan as we close, again from the book, The Rest of God. Liturgy then, this practice, this habit of Sabbath, it's not law, this is important. The last thing I want to do here is return us to some parched and crabbed legalism around Sabbath observance. The beauty of calling Sabbath practice a liturgy is that nothing is violated if it's violated or if it's altered, expanded, abbreviated. No punishment ensues. Liturgy functions in a completely different way. Better to think of it not just as a bridge, but as a kind of choreography. A choreography for our dance with things unseen, things ancient, and things anticipated, things above and things below. Some move through the choreography with light-footed elegance and others with flat-footed clumsiness. You can add your own steps and moves, ignore others, or sit it out entirely, and no one will arrest you. But don't you want to dance? That's the invitation that the Lord gives us. Let me pray for us as we prepare for the rest of our service. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Sabbath. Thank you that there is a deep rest to be found in the finished work of your son. And God, I pray that you would help us to apply these truths, that we would see Sabbath as a gift. It's not something to do to prove that we're a good Christian, but it's something that we get to enjoy and you've given it to us for our good and for our joy. And it's also an opportunity to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed, as people observe, how is it that you can rest amidst all the busyness and the chaos? May our Sabbath practices speak to where our trust ultimately lies. And God, I pray that you would do this for your namesake, for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.